sitting here with Paul Reddick, and I'm curious as to how you got into songwriting and how that's evolved over the years. Well, I, I really began to <clears throat> write uh, uh, seriously when I was in the band The Sidemen, mm-hmm. which began in 1990, I think. And uh, <clears throat> we, the guitar player Kyle Ferguson and I eventually, originally started as a duo and did a bunch of covers and played together and just naturally you know, said we should write, try writing some songs. And I think the reason for writing songs uh, is to try to use the, you know, the genre as a tool mm-hmm. to express yourself. And uh, rather than just to express yourself through performing pre-existing material, and I always felt that an ob- almost an obligation to do that. I think that it was my responsibility, if I were to be an artist, to create, and without knowing if I could or not. And Kyle and I began writing things and experimenting and getting a feel for. Uh, when things worked and things didn't work and how much was too much and eventually sort of got into a, a sense that we, you could take a pre-existing feel or uh, something and just turn the dial a little bit. It was Kyle's expression. like we, You don't have to take something and turn it on its head. You could just move it a degree or two mm-hmm. and it would echo the, the something but be new. There's all sorts of funny business ways of going about it, but, um, and I did write songs when I was a teenager. I, I had a band and wrote some uh, terrible songs that I don't, or can't even recall what they were. But, but in, in the genre of blues, rightly or wrongly, there was certain rules. And I know it doesn't have to be limited to those rules, but there are certain rules, and that there's a certain format that gets repeated over and over and over again. And somehow, and I presume you started that way initially to do a slow blues or a shuffle or no, whatever. No, never, nev- never did. Okay. <clears throat> that, it just was, it seemed uh, obvious to try to mess with the form. We did write 12-bar blues. And there is a, there are traditions in blues music, uh, the 12-bar pattern being, form being the main one. Uh, there are other ones, 8-bar and 16-bar, and, and uh, as I've been exploring lately, songs that just stay on one chord, like Bo Diddley does that, and Johnny Hooker did that, and all sorts of, you know, mm-hmm. blues guys did that. Howlin' Wolf, Little Walter has some songs like that. Um, but uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's possible to toy with the forms, just as people do, like a you know, poets, poetry is all forms, the different poem forms. And you can see, in, well, I, I, I read a lot of poems and look and books about poetry, and you can see where people mess with the form in order to see what might happen. And uh, it, it, it isn't that complicated. But, uh, and, but writing songs, it's kind of like rolling dice, you know. You, you don't know what's going to happen. I, you know, I... I just wrote a, we made a new record and one of the songs, we had, I had put together pieces and we sort of created about six songs at that point, seven. Mm-hmm. And um, 
sitting around with the band and people were suggesting stuff and I just had this one bass line which I had which actually came from a, a guitar player from Memphis Mini it's a very thing that she she did this dung da da dung 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 and had my bass player play that and then the guitar players just naturally accompanied it in this way and the drummer played it in his way and I had a lyric and I sang it out and that song was born spontaneously with no it just happened and that's and that's the way it ended like that we, it's, it's on the record as that upon that very first incidence of intuitive you know instinctive uh, playing I mean so, I presume that doesn't happen very often doesn't happen a lot uh, it, the things uh, just click. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you'll um, do things that seem like they should work. You think I got this great bass line. I got this great idea, and you do it, and it doesn't. Qu nobody feels comfortable for some reason, and you don't know why. And I we used to struggle with the sidemen. We used to rehearse songs that were shit for weeks, trying to make them good, thinking it's gotta work. Why isn't it working? And eventually, you know, we we stopped. And so now I have kind of a a, a rule or, or that if it doesn't feel good in three minutes, it's gone. Wow. And maybe it'll come back another day resolved. But it's got to happen instantaneously. If it doesn't feel good right from the get-go where everybody in the room is going, yeah, that feels good. Yeah, and I it, guess then I meant, it's gone. I meant more like... You know, in, in regards to the example that you gave, I, I meant more like that everybody would tune in and it would just feel right the first time. It seems like something that wouldn't happen as often, but I can see that uh, an idea forming and then that being changed or that be becoming the initial right. thought that that matures or that that gets explored to become the yeah. final song. But how how easy is it to get a whole band in tune? Not in tune, but on side and that everybody feels good about it immediately well sometimes it helps to have a deadline where everyone feels under pressure or knows we only have so much time in this instance we had four days of rehearsal prior to going into the studio the next week I think it was like Tuesday to Friday and then and then we still were going to start recording the following Tuesday till Friday so there's a sense of urgency and so everyone is focused and committed to wanting it to happen. And so, and choosing who plays on a record has so much to do with what mm -hmm. ends up happening. It's, a, I remember after I'd made this record thinking, and I chose the people that I worked with carefully on this one, knowing what I was gonna get and what, uh, and I remember hearing an interview with Miles Davis, I think it was on, Dick Cavett, and he was, Dick Cavett was saying, you change the music all the time, how do you do that? And Miles said it, it was from choosing the bands that he played with, mm -hmm. more than him making some decision to say, I want to do this. And he was talking about that record, Kind of Blue, and how he was thinking that it came, he was fascinated with, with uh, African thumb piano, the, those little mm -hmm. things, and... Uh, there's another word for those, I forget. But uh, that's what his idea was, was to sound like one of those. And he said, obviously, it didn't end up sounding like that because these guys, they interpret it one way. And so choosing mu your musicians 
has a phenomenal effect on the outcome of a song. And how soon do you know? How soon do you know that this is the right band or right collection of musicians to work with? Well, it took me a long time to get good at it because I put a lot of bands together based on certain principles and um, their limitations. Well, they're all good, but I wasn't sure why or the, what the limitations, mm-hmm. why it occurred. Because I'm not, I'm not a bass player, I'm not a drummer, I'm not a guitar player, and they're all really good. But sometimes when you, you, I, we play the song, when I put the harmonica to my lips, it just won't play, or I can't sing. There's, it's this, you know, it's an awkward uh, phenomenon of fit. Mm-hmm. And then as I've matured and become more aware of that, I, I'm tending to choose musicians a little more carefully knowing and I got I really I love the band that I've just recorded with but I don't know if I, I would use them again just for this for the sake of of uh, seeing what happens right. but in playing with them live and you develop a relationship you become like a family and uh, although all of them play in other bands apart from me because I, I don't uh, offer full time employment but uh, I guess you don't know. But do you go you into the project thinking, I want to record with these people and hopefully the, I want to tour or I want to play with, live with them? Or do you just think in terms of these would be good people to record with if they're available for future work? Right. Great, but it's not necessarily the future band. <clears throat> well, it's such a chicken and egg sort of business, a music business, because I, I don't even know what the like prior to making a record what the record was going to end up being though I was pretty confident with this one and uh, what it might bring me right. in terms of work and we just enjoy playing doing it so much that everyone wants to keep doing it because it it, it was important to everybody the, the experience mm-hmm. and everyone seems to want to keep they're like oh yeah I'll play I'll take the gig I want to play Right. And they play for no money. We do funny little gigs in Toronto, and they all want to come and show up because we like each other and we love what happens when we play together. It's a phenomenon, you know. It's like marriage or jobs or anything you get into, and then they evolve. You know, people's situations change, their needs change, your tastes change, the the uh, the market changes, our opportunities change, and. I don't expect to have the same band my whole life. Right. Some people do. You know, you look at people like Tom Petty and these Bruce Springsteen. They have these lifelong relationships with people. Right. And I, I've not been fortunate enough to have that. And yet, Kyle was at the CD release party. Yes, and Kyle played. As he Kyle, keeps popping oh, up all the places. Yes, and <laughs> Kyle. I suppose Kyle is the one, probably the longest term and and fixed uh, musical relationship I have though he doesn't work as a musician anymore but we still uh, he wasn't involved in the writing of this record but I said to him the way in which I write is a result of the way that he and I used to write Mm -hmm. like that's I really became a musician playing with Kyle and a songwriter writing with Kyle and uh, so yeah it is is a, a lifelong at this point in my life lifelong isn't as long as it once was so 
Wouldn't it be longer? (laughs) You know. (laughs) But I remember you telling me about the process of writing and how much work you put into the words, the lyrics. And I remember you talking about going to the library and spending hours reading right. books and writing things yeah. down. Is that still the same process, or has the process of writing music changed for you over the last few years? Yes, I think it has. <clears throat> I've gone through well, lyrically. I have all I, I spend a lot of time on the lyrics, and from just experimenting with poem forms and. It's sort of a game, really. And I, when I have a, a project, I'll concentrate a lot on writing the lyrics and, and sit down and write all sorts of lyrics and massage them and rewrite them. And it's very fun. That's something I do by myself. And then in the musical part, I've always co-written the, the, the music because mm-hmm. I don't play the guitar. And, and I've enjoyed suggesting to someone, you know, because people like Kyle and... and Lately, Steve Mariner, this fellow, Greg Cockrell, they're very sympathetic to, they seem to understand what I want. I can say, and Colin Linden was really, mm-hmm. I, could, I could say, what if we did a little bit of this and a little bit of this? And immediately, it was there. He right. was able to articulate things for me. Um, but I, on this record, was a little more, well, because it's based on <clears throat> primarily one chord songs. I put the parts together, and I was a little more uh, controlling on this one because I, I wanted it to be something. And did you specific. have a specific idea going into is that oh, where yes. the control comes in? Yeah, I had a very specific idea of what I wanted. <clears throat> Can we just go back to that notion of the one chord song? Because when I spoke to you the other week, you said, "I said, oh, you mean like John Lee Hooker?" And you said, "No, right." <laughs> so, I mean that you know, or the the Mississippi Hill. Uh, blues that I, that right. I think of, but you said no, that wasn't necessary yet. So, can you tell me the origins of the one chord concept that you came up with and how that happened and why it happened? Well, certainly, the, all those examples are, are, are. I just didn't want to sound like those people. I didn't want to approach it in the same way or use. There's a certain language in all in <clears throat> the individual sound of John Lee Hooker. Or anyone, if you're going to sound like them and use their vocabulary, or in stylistically the hill country stuff, it has a certain approach, and I didn't want to go there. And the musicians I played with, uh, they weren't really familiar with that. And that's part of the, except for Steve Mariner probably is, but the rest of them aren't. So I, that's one of the ways that I avoided it sounding like, you know, the Black Keys or whatever other blues rock bands are out there. But I've always liked live. Music has a kind of overwhelming effect on me when when we play. It's, uh, I, I, I'm over, I guess it is for everyone, but I really get overtaken by it to the point where it's really kind of sort of trance-like state that I I don't really experience in any other instance Mm -hmm. and uh, so oftentimes when we play live I would say the band you know in the middle of the song or the end of the song or the beginning of a song or at any point say ride the one just stay on that chord and 
they would do that, but still kind of improvise around it, like, you know, doing stuff to, but it was just that the one corn idea was very attractive to me. Hmm. But I began to realize that it'd be more powerful if the parts were orchestrated. They didn't vary. If there wasn't just like free reign to improvise over top of it. It was like play the same thing over and over again and don't vary it in order to create. Because repetition has a hypnotic thing. And I had it done ride the, they had, we had the band ride them on a lot, but it was always messing around doing that still. Like, they'd go, and I wanted to see what would happen if I actually reined it in and said, this, play the same part. Don't vary it. And I had various people on the stage said to them, that part you just played, play it over and over again. And it was hard for them. It was difficult. When I, during the writing process, it was difficult for the, for the musicians to, for their, well, just their, their hands to deal with the repetition and the urge to change chords. During the writing process, they were constantly going to the four chord. <laughs> I have to go to the four chord. I must. And I, and I was like, no. And it was, it was interesting seeing the, the, it was, you know, so it's a little, a little odd. I, I wasn't that strict, but, but there's a lot of, it still has to breathe. Right. And certainly, it was primarily the guitars. The bass, I let go free. And the bass player I play with, Anna Ruddick, is her name, is very much an Im improviser. And that gave it some, you know, back, uh, some, uh, some motion. How uh, did you know this would work? I mean, was there a point that you thought, okay, because it's an idea when you first go in and say, let's ride the one. Right. And then then it, you know you could do two songs and it works and maybe halfway into the album it might not work or was there a point where you thought this is going to work this is what I, I exactly oh, what I thought there is I did I did believe in it I mean it's a little I've been thinking about this idea for 10 15 years maybe but also was worried that doing repetitive songs on the one card would get dull right. obviously so how much what possible how could you pull that off to have 10 songs or 12 that do that but we did write some other parts like I, I did at certain moments write a bridge because I didn't it wasn't like I was you know trying to be a fundamentalist about it but because the effect was there and then you know it gets to a point where you, there is a moment where you you want to break the tension or recreate the tension or, or reset the tension by putting an interlude at some point and you can do that without changing chords or with changing chords. And uh, uh, we did that. But I had my producer, Colin Cripps, was very doubtful about it because he's a great melodic person. You know, he, he's, he plays in a melodic band and he sings melodic songs and he has a great gift for melody, which he and I have written a bunch of songs together prior to this. And he, he didn't want to book the studio like a week in advance. He said, I'm not going to book the studio because I don't hear any songs. Hmm. And uh, so I booked the studio myself. I just phoned him. I said, fuck that. He booked that fucking studio. <laughs> and because I knew that it'd be good. And I had to say to him, it is going to be good. Just wait until we get into rehearsals. And, you know, I had no doubt. And I was great. I had great conviction about it. And when we went into the rehearsals, the band too, they were like, uh, but I, 
it just it means so much to me to do that and to have that these songs where I could go deeper into the trance that was my goal was to have them play live and just be now was there a moment when the when you got the buy-in from the band like could you tell 10 seconds after we started like as soon as we started the first song as a group we knew and that was it and the, the, it was song after song after song we wrote them and I think we threw away one but every every idea that I luckily the ones I had they all worked they just went bang 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 we learned it took us four days to learn nine and that was it did, did the way you write lyrics change for this album with this concept? Well, strangely, I, it kind of did because I, I'd written a lot of sort of scratch lyrics, lyrics that I hadn't polished up that much, but I had 12, 14 sets of lyrics. And I, this record's very simplified and there's a lot of repetition in the lyric as well. I tried to save fewer things and to interject the narrative um, subtly uh, and in most songs there's quite a bit of repetition in the lyric so I simplified them and when we were recording reduced them to, to accentuate the rep repetitive feature to it and it because it seemed it matched the music you know and um, so it did change the way I write the lyric I edited them down much more I only used parts of them I would use 40% of a lyric uh, and just made it more repetitive and I tried to keep them fairly simple and it was it's an interesting way to simple is always good so when you do introduce the narrative to it it seemed to have good Im it was impactful so you've written a lot of songs and you've done some amazing work in the past and and of varying degrees because the last few albums have been very wishbone is very different from the prior album right and and battle brag is quite quite different from what you're doing now right. you know in, in the performance of the cd release party i went to you basically played the whole cd in its order yeah but do you see like is that the way it's going to be approached or do you see how these songs will work with the existing the songs. previous catalog. Well, they've been working pretty well. And I, it is interesting at this point, because uh, I hadn't... this. I'm, I've, since 2001, I made one Rattlebag, Villanelle, Sugarbird, Wishbone, four records. And then there was... And... Um, from some of them, I would only play from. I played like eight off of one, and three off another, and four off another, and mm -hmm. five off another, and uh, they all went together well. But this record really adds. I feel like it sort of ties it all together in a way. You know, it's a summary of those records mm -hmm. in a way. And um, I mean, in some ways, I kind of hear bits of Rattlebag or yeah. certain songs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think you have. The habits, certainly it's me singing and me playing the harmonica and those things, the sound of them are kind of remain static. You know, my voice is my voice and probably my pattern, my habits of phrasing would make them seem similar as well. 
And it's a rock blues record, as was Rattlebag. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've made sort of folksy records in between and experimented with all sorts of different uh, ensemble things other than doing a acoustic record, like a two-piece record or something like that. But uh, So is that just... Are you constantly working with different ideas? Do these ideas come to you? How does that happen that, you know, you decide that you want to do more of an acoustic album or you want to do more of a one-chord album? Or how does that process? Well, <clears throat> the Rattlebag record, which was a very successful record for me, and, and I still play a lot of the songs on there, uh, it came out of... <clears throat> The sidemen had sort of folded. We all had little kids, and nobody could ter- travel. And I, uh, I, had, I thought I'll just make a record to get gigs in Toronto. I'll make it as cheap as I can. Just make something so we could get some gigs. Mm-hmm. And I called Colin Linden, who I'd met. I'd made a record with this brass, a funky brass band called the Rhythm and Truth Brass Band. He produced a record for them, and we had met there. And um, I remember saying to him, I want to make like the great Canadian blues record. I, I, uh, that's my goal. And he was like, me too. <clears throat> and I said, I meant mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I phoned him and he said, I said, do you know how I can make a record for 10 grand? You know, like using my telephone as a, as a recording machine or something cheap. I just need a, a, a basic record. And his response was, well, never make a shitty record. Make the best record you can. And if you write the songs and write the lyrics, I'll produce it for you. And so all of a sudden, I, because he's a great producer mm-hmm. and, you know, he's a legend, Colin, and a, a sort of a genius. And so I was given this opportunity, ironically, with a band that wasn't going to be able to play. Right. And uh, they, would bar- they could barely rehearse. We, we was tr- it was a tricky one to get that put together, but I worked very hard because I thought, well, because we'd made a bunch of records, three or four of them prior to that, which sounded terrible. Songwriting was bad. They were just pieces of shit. <laughs> I'm not sure they were that, they were that bad. <laughs> well, maybe not shit. They were crap. No. <laughs> They just weren't good enough. I was never, I was never satisfied with right. the sound and and the the, the, and how clar- the clarity of them. Making a crappy record. Yeah, how does it feel to make like a crappy sh- record? Crap! It makes you feel it's terrible. I would go home and listen to the the tapes and just I would cry and because then I wasn't really it wasn't my band at that time. I was in control, so I was a, you know in somehow the people that recorded us they did, they didn't know how to do it like the. I thought, why is it that I listened to music from 1938 and it sounds fantastic, and you just recorded something and it sounds terrible because it's not mixed well and the microphones, the engineering. I just had bad luck with that. Hmm. I said, I'm not the, who, there may be people listening to who were involved with that. <laughs> Forgive me. But, 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 but it, I guess the other so thing I, is... So I was, I felt terrible about it. Right. And, but, but I think it should be understood that making an album or recording an album is not a simple thing. And, no. and I've been lucky to go to a number of recording sessions and I've seen some, I've heard or seen or witnessed amazing things come out of the studio. But I've also been there when things don't go right. And when right. they don't go right, it's, it's ugly. Yeah. Well, you know, I also believe that the material determines the phenomenon of recording. And that 
maybe I'm wrong, but when the song is good, it doesn't matter. It just, something happens. and You can poorly record a great song and it's still going to work. Mm-hmm. And our songwriting at those times was developmental. And um, it, it didn't, it wasn't as good as it could have been. It, we, it was evolving. It's always evolving. I mean, it's still evolving. I'm not to claim that I'm, I've reached some sort of point. It's never ending. It does not change the challenge. But uh, does it get any easier or not? It gets easier in the fact that I have the luxury of working with great musicians, and I've you know I'm able to hire people that you know based on my history and I've been fortunate to have good producers work with me and so that makes it easier certainly yeah it does mm-hmm. it makes it easier it makes it easier to to have a great team and um, but the actual process maybe my instincts are a little better now than they once were I think lyrically I I kind of know what I do now and have a certain systems that I use and, and ways of going about it and, and the sense of it. But I mean, I can't say that I've got a top 10 song. Like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. they're all the, my own eccentric, esoteric things I do. And I, I don't know if they make any difference to the world, but they, they, I feel better about them than I used to. Mm-hmm. In some ways, this album is probably more blues than last few albums you've done. And I don't know if that's a fair thing to say, but... I suppose. Like, I find it curious because I've had musicians... I've had a number of conversations with musicians about the blues and how people um, kind of want to not move away from, but to expand beyond that. I don't know if you've ever felt that because in some ways, some of your albums were less blues right and I don't know if that was a conscious attempt to say I have a certain following in the blues and I want to expand that following or if it was, had nothing to do with that what's your approach on that oh, <clears throat> I've never consciously uh, made a record for you know uh, pragmatic reasons mm-hmm. um, and really that's and it's cost me <clears throat> because my um, audience or people whoever might give me a gig or come see me play they're primarily blues fans blues people and they don't always want to be served something that isn't because the most basic 12 bar shuffle is so satisfying and so great that when you go there to hear blues you kind of want to hear that when I go see a blues band I want to hear that go to you know it just feels so good so you know when I've offered other things God bless those who have had the patience to endure it but um, but really do you feel like you've lost people along the way or you've kind of alienated people with I don't know some of the directions there's no way of measuring it I don't know no but I'm also thinking that there's at certain point it became about people being your fan as opposed to I shouldn't say that, but I, I just I don't know if it's if it's 
if you could lose people because most people come out to see it you. It isn't so much that it's that they just there isn't the same response. Um, I made a record prior to this one called Wishbone, and it was kind of you know I I read the Keith Richards book his memoir and was listening to the Stones a lot. And I think that affected the, the type of grooves that I came up with. It was kind of stonesy, but I thought it was, you know, still pretty bluesy. And it was the first time I worked with Colin and his sort of uh, take on how it, how to balance the blues aspect with the non-blues aspect as though, and it, and from his perspective, he was trying to do like a broad right. audience, a broad-based uh, thing. And sorry, this is not Colin Lennon, this is Colin, Colin Cripps. And... You know, I think that he felt that I was the blues element and the songs and the band were, he straightened it out a lot. Mm -hmm. And that was a great record, but it was difficult. Well, I wasn't, I I did it independently. I was not a label. Mm -hmm. I'd been on a label, Northern Blues, that folded, so I just put it out independently. And, you know, uh, to get press for it was difficult because a lot of the the blues press, it, it wasn't within their their um, vocabulary there their, um, to to identify what it was right and somehow that seems important so and was I, it a disappointment I mean it's a great album no it wasn't a disappointment uh, I, I loved it and I still play a bunch of the songs and it did me some good but uh, I knew that it wouldn't I can't claim I can't compete with rock music, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a blues record, but it, you know, I, I I wanted to make it, and I did, and I didn't. Exp- this record was kind of a reaction to a, a situation. The story of this record is that it was an answer, or a rebound, or an echo, to a record that I made, which I didn't release. I recorded over a year after making Wishbone, a whole album of songs, uh, which I co-wrote the lyrics and the music, and we recorded them. I, I spent a ton of money on making these, and I was, they were done. We, it was a long, I really worked hard on making a record, of which has, was no, has no name. And I was mixing the songs in uh, the same studio where I mixed this record and, and bunch of records and there was just a moment where I thought I can't release this I I can't I, I don't I don't like this wow and it was sort of a because you just want to keep trying and trying and trying and they're beautiful songs and was it like a struggle throughout the whole process or was it somewhat, in reflection it was somewhat of a struggle and I I just tried to do an ex- it was a bit of an experiment in trying to allow to give away part of the creative process more than I did usually, especially co-writing the lyrics. I, I co-wrote them with a woman, a friend of mine named Agnieszka Polakowska, who was a, I'd met, um, she was a friend of mine, a friend of a friend. She was an academic and uh, working on her PhD in literature and complaining to me about, you know, how it was boring her. And I said, have you ever tried writing poetry? And she hadn't really, we sat down I suggested she try this certain poem form. We sat together for three hours, and she wrote this poem. It was so good that I said, well, we should try writing together, just as an experiment. 
And we worked very hard. We would get together three times a week, five hours a night, slaving over these um, lyrics. And her, she was very literal, where I tend to be very, um, uh, you know, abstract or metaphorical. And we did come up with some a very interesting hybrid. Inevitably, and the, I wrote the music with a guy named uh, uh, James Robertson and with Colin Cripps. And they were beautiful songs, but in, at a certain point I thought, I can't, they don't fit into, to going back to the catalog, they, don't, they didn't really fit into the existing live catalog. Mm -hmm. They didn't fit in, there's not something I could have sold. I realized that, what am I going to do with this thing? And How awful does that feel when you it, it didn't. It, did, it didn't feel awful. It was, it was, it's part of the process. I mean, it cost me a, a, a lot of money, but I, I really look at it as a, the the end result was I don't want to be passive anymore. I want to take control. Why I didn't always do that, I just see my nature. But I was like, you know what? You have a job to do. Do your job. So in your mind, did you think if I release this, this, this could reflect badly on me? Or no, it yeah, won't yeah, fit? Or? Yeah, it wouldn't fit. It would be, it wouldn't, I, wouldn't be able, it, I wouldn't be able to get it played anywhere on any kind of... It, maybe, you know, I can't... It'd be like presenting myself as a singer-songwriter. And, you know, there, there are several of those. Mm -hmm. There's so many singer-songwriters. There, I, I put... I put uh, put some of the songs on the SoundCloud. There were some beautiful songs, but it didn't have that simple impact. And I, you know, I, I, and they were all kind of soft songs. So my answer to that was to go, okay, let's just make a record that feels good and that is sexy and that is fun. And then when we play it live, it's fun and people will dance and, and it'll be, and then the ride, the one idea just thought that's let's do that and it, and so I just began to research all that different kind of listening to those type of songs I, I spent a, not that long maybe two months researching making notes making little phone recordings and compiling a a, a um, the, the, the basic bones of the tunes and wrote the lyrics quickly and just thought, you know, make a statement. Is there a chance that the other album or songs from the other album will ever resurface, or you don't think... I, I, I only mix six out of ten, and uh, I put, there's a thing, SoundCloud. Mm -hmm. I put four of them on SoundCloud just so you can listen to them, because, you know, they're well recorded, and I, I use great musicians for that as well, and they might be something that could be used as a you know, I've got them out there in case they might get used for a commercial or something like that, because they stand on their own. But from a from a pragmatic point of view, it just I knew that it would it would be because you can only kind of release a record a year. I thought it's going to commit me to a year of not being able to capitalize, not be able to play on them. I, I just can't compete with that world, right. and so I made this record in answer to it. So, some getting back to making records with the intention of them appealing. I wanted it to appeal to a blues audience, this record, and I knew that it would because it's it's the heart of that blues um, language. Mm -hmm. and 
How, I, how did the Stony Plain thing happen? Well, so Holger, I, I played out in Edmonton probably a year and a half ago and did an interview with Holger Peterson in Edmonton on, uh, I think, for CKUA with the Alberta Radio. Fantastic station. Fantastic. I was listening to it today. And here in Toronto. And he's expressed interest because he liked Wishbone. And then I actually played that stuff for him, and he agreed that they. That I said I don't like this music. He was like, "Well, I wouldn't release it." Hmm. So he agreed, and I was glad to get that affirmation. So I made this record without knowing if he if it would work or not, but I I knew it would work. Right. So I made it to him. I sent it to him, and he was like, "Great, let's put it out." And I've known Holger for a long time. He he used to. Probably since the Sidemen began, I probably met him in Edmonton in 1993 mm-hmm. or something like that. And uh, he's a great guy, and he agreed to put it out. And it's, I had had, I made three records, one, two, three, four records on a label called Northern Blues, right. which is a great label too. A guy named Fred Litwin who did a great job and he was a great supporter. Mm-hmm. But uh, Holger's label is, well, Fred went under. And Holger does not. So that in itself tells you something about him as a businessman and them as, as a label. And also, what is it, 40 years or something? 40 years yeah. this year. So that's made a difference, and it's been fun with this record because they have a, a Canadian publicist, Sarah French, and then uh, American publicist, Mark Pucci, and they're getting it out there. And so now I'm getting all the reviews and I'm getting all the fuel to to generate other things like uh, you know um, getting songs placed in sound with, with moving pictures mm-hmm. and uh, it's generating interest increasing the fan base it's a it's a productive record for for so you're already seeing the results of that well my my goal is to to play more and to play better venues and all that stuff. Most of the big venues book a year in advance, and so it would be next year. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the results being, you know, gigs and money. But certainly, uh, yeah, I think that it's going to make a difference to me. It's people people like the record, and they. It's only been out for a month, and a bit. It's the twentieth of May. What is it? Is it the twentieth of June? 20s, 20s, it's around the month, a m- month, and uh, it's got a ways to go yet with its response, and uh, it's getting played on the radio. It was been top of this thing called the Roots Music Chart for right. three weeks. Now it's then it was number two. Now it's number four, which is, uh, means a lot of people are hearing it and uh, liking it. And where are you in the states? Because I know that that battle bag got some nominations for the WC Handy Awards. It was nominated for like Best New Artist, I think. Yeah. And and so there was there was a bit of following in the US. There was a bit of a buzz created in the yeah. States. You also play in Europe yeah. every so often. I don't know if you still continue. Yes, yes. So where is that at this point? Like, it, Do you still do annual treks to Europe? And I do to, to Europe. <clears throat> I've been going there every year. It's been a year. I was just Skyping with my friend Ray Skona, who has the band that I, I use and play with there. And 
I hope to go back. I've had an agent in Germany, and he tends to book very conventional blues. He, he likes, he's always looked at me as a bit of a, you know, He doesn't seem to love what I do. <laughs> you know, the tours we, he's done are very good. Uh, they tend to be on sort of a subscription. There's a bunch of places oh, okay. you go there, and it's always full. I've done beautiful tours. but And the States, I haven't played there in a while. I used to tour there all the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even my agent, they, I had an, a great agent in Missouri for just two years, and we played there a lot. Like, I was down there you know, 250 dates a year. It was amazing. Just hammering away. But it was all clubs and well, occasional festivals. And, you know, it, I remember one year the income was like the expenses were $1,000 more overall from the gross income for the whole year. Hmm. So I worked all that time and it lost $1,000. And for people who don't understand that, I mean, it comes down to being the band leader, you have to pay everybody first. And if anything goes wrong, like the van breaks down or whatever, oh, yeah. it's coming out of your pocket. Yeah, and days off, you pay for hotels, and it's just the mathematics of it were that the income and those type of gigs, right. it's just not efficient. And these days, there are not too many people that, like the agent went out of business. He had a bunch of people on his lap, but the bars just sort of went, eh. So how do you view the business of music now? Because, you know, since I first met you, which is around the time of Rattlebag, Things have changed drastically, and probably more so in the last five years than in the first five or whatever. Right. How do you view? I mean, obviously, you're in a good position that you're in with with an, uh, a very respect respected independent label, um, and that has a reach, and they have means as to getting your publicity. But club the club scene is different. Festivals are different. How do you view the the business of music from your point of view right now well i i'm i'm never sure about it you know i i i think that the opportunities are there for anyone if you if you're committed to working and working hard and doing a good job that you can do well mm-hmm. but it's tricky and the certainly playing in Toronto we would just play for fun play at a number of venues like clubs mm-hmm. just to, to play you know we don't make any money and oftentimes I give all the money to the band I don't take any of the money I've done that over and over again just so they can make 75 bucks instead of 40 you but know. does that make sense in terms no of it doesn't uh, it makes sense in terms of the simple act of playing music for the joy of it Mm-hmm. which is really what is why I do it and that's and I love to play and I don't care where it is or how many people are in the audience and when the band and we always commit ourselves 100% to playing so I want to play just for the experience of it I have to but one of the models is don't ever play clubs ever in order to generate this sort of uh, you know the mystique that allows you to play in the theater gigs, right. and they exist all over the country, and there are agents. The and agents only book those type of gigs. There are no agents for the clubs, really, very mm-hmm. that much, because they don't make any money, and so. You know, uh, they wait for an act that is capable of 
that has generated through whatever means uh, an ability to play in these better venues and um, uh, there are ways of going that and uh, there are different echelons of you know right. of where you can play and it's somewhat of a mysterious business mm-hmm. and luck uh, you know um, to get attention from people in order that they know you exist that they might want to come and see you play certainly Stony Plain the record label is doing a very good job of getting that out there social media uh, helps I, I did an interview the other day with a, on a radio station and they were adjacent to the Much Music building and they said the most of the acts there who none of them it was the video, Much Music Video Awards mm-hmm. and they weren't familiar with most of the artists and, and neither am I because they're, they're you know kids music right. but they said that they those people have teams of like 20 people who are on just hammering the social media over and over again right. just and on all the different platforms so you know there's no no limit and I'm looking at all sorts of ways of trying to increase my uh, the breadth of what I do from I'm you know trying to approach the literary side of what I do get writers to endorse me and we become part of the the writing thing and, and that could you know the things tend to it all adds up to right. something good but to to be persistent in trying to find the but it's still to me you know I don't know but I I see a lot of music that, I, that I, I, I'm not inspired by doing well, mm-hmm. but it does well for a reason, which you can't take away from it. And um, I've never had any sense of entitlement about the music business, though, you know, they owed me a living of any kind. But uh, Which is really strange to me. I mean, you're really well respected from, from everything that I can see. Right. And, and you produce quality material that's been recognized and you've been awarded and you know and yet it's a struggle which is well you know part of it is it's a funny thing I I really do do it kind of you know naively out of love I do it because I love it and sort of for the feeling and um I didn't get into it with the intention of being a businessman. And I never intended to be a performer. It's just what you do. You know, it's the it's in order to play live. It just it just happened. So I explained that. <clears throat> that you wanted to be more of a recording artist no, or I no? just wanted to play. I just wanted to play I wanted to have a harmonica in my hand and play it. Right. And I didn't know what it was to be on the stage or any of that because I was I was a kid. I would play along with records, and I just loved to play and interact with, with muddy waters on a turntable, and um, inevitably you have to get up on the stage and form bands and all that stuff, and uh, so, you know, I I I refer to, uh, I'm a bit of an idiot too, but lately as in the experience of making that record in which I 
gave away so much control and ended up something that wasn't any good. When I did take control of it, it worked out better. And I think I have a responsibility, and I know that I do, to take control of the, the career a little more and to start asking for things, expecting things, and to present myself in, in that way because I know that I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. I'm, I know that the songs I write are... I'm proud of them. I feel strong that they're good. We were playing the other night, that whole album start to finish, I just thought, man, these are, it's good. And I don't, it's not egotistical about me. I feel like, honestly, the one thing we didn't mention in the writing of songs is, you know, the writing of songs, I didn't invent notes, I didn't invent blues, and I didn't invent music. It was like painters didn't invent color. And yet, we all, they all take credit for it in some sort of way. So I I own the color red, you know, and I, but so I guess I'm going to become more proprietorial mm-hmm. about it and say okay, because I want to continue and to have the money to continue. You know, one has to do their job, and I'm in a position now where I I really feel like I'm not going to give up until it, I I start making some money and. and allowing it to fulfill its promise right. which I think is great well I think the fact that you've been recognized and you've been awarded so many times speaks to the fact that obviously you're good at what you do you know that's not I mean I, I presume there's a bit of popularity but the fact is that you've been nominated and, and you've won tons of awards so well I don't know but I mean those things are, are, are a result of um as much about the, the promotional aspect of it as the music. Mm-hmm. Awards things are really our promotional vehicle for the award ceremony itself, for the genre, for the blues community. They're, they're meant to uh, bring attention to the blues community via the artists. It's not always about your work per se, but it might be the degree to which you've hustled. Mm-hmm. And um, But, uh, yeah... I, I've devoted my whole—I mean, I'm, my whole life to to this thing, without pause. Like, in everything else in my life has changed. You know, my relationships, where I live. You know, my my body, but this thing doesn't ever change. Right. And and uh, it never will, until I can't do it for some reason. Hopefully, I'll die before then. But it's uh, it's my destiny, if we ever have such a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, is. I mean, you can tell. You can tell this is what you do. And, you know, I always think that the true musicians that I've always met, it's never been about money. It's about doing it. And it's... I, I just cleaned up my garage in this apartment. I rented it, and I couldn't afford it, so I, I got rid of it and threw away almost everything I own. But I saved a piece of paper I found on the fridge and it was I wrote it when I was 16 and it said you know I went to work today and I'm blah 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 blah, and I had lunch blah 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 and then I went downstairs and and did the thing that I know that I'm supposed to do and that's to play the harmonica I listened to Muddy Waters and I played along with the thing and I said I know this is my like this is what I'm supposed to do and this is what I will always do and I was 16 you know so Hey. And you're a bit older than that now. I'm 54 now. 
I know. Time flies. We're having fun. <laughs> and, and you haven't lost that passion at all? No, not at all. No, God, no. It's ever-increasing, really. I think that I, as I get older, I'm more confident about appreciating life than I was when I was young. Mm-hmm. There's always the struggle to express it. And I don't really feel as much of a, a struggle a need to express it in the same with the same degree of of uh, how could I ever express it now I really like I can just because I I've you know experienced the joy of whatever joys we have you have a cup of coffee or a, a garden or whatever and uh, I feel very confident about my relationship to to music right now you know mm-hmm. so we'll see but the music business I it's a funny I, I I'll let you know but I know you'll do it like I, I know it doesn't matter you will no. always play music of course yeah I'd like to if I had my if I had a goal it would be that I played well, I might get worn out. I'd like to tell myself, you know, seven days a week, maybe five days a week, six days a week. If I could play every day or as much as I could take it, I would. But you also have to ask a band to do that as well. You have to pay them. But if I could just travel around, I don't care if it was just within 50-mile radius or if it was the whole world, if I, you know, if I had to go from here to Europe to whatever Australia and back and just circumnavigate the globe and if I could just play every day I would that's what I it's the not playing to me is the time I'm not very good at the rest of it I'm disorganized and I'm distracted Uh, music is the place where I'm at home songs or when when the song begins it is that dream like experience of being inside of a song I just, I wish I was there all the time. I'm like Dorothy. It's like, it's like Oz, really, it, mm. you know? You know, but then you have to wake up and say, you were there, and you were there. <laughs> it's all well, black and white. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate every, you know, I've known you for a while, and I, every time I've asked for an interview, you've been very kind. It's always a thrill and, and educational inspiring whenever I talk to you well, so I thank you again thank for you very much this time. and hopefully we can check in in a year when you're gigging around in the world and yeah you know yeah we'll be there'll be palm trees probably good I'll see you there <laughs> thank you very thank much thank you Marco it's always a pleasure thank you so much